I'm Jenny McKee, and I am new. <laughs> I'm actually one of your online people, though. So I've been coming almost a year online. And thank you so much for your amazing, genuine worship, because you guys have been a lifeline to me. So thank you. And I was part of Wally and Liz's um, online group, and that was fantastic. So I will miss that greatly that's not online this year. Anyway, thank you, and um, I'm going to read a scripture today, Matthew 14, 1 through 23. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. <clears throat> for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that a request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then he went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat to, privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up into heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. <clears throat> then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Let's pray. Thanks, God, for um, this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the love and compassion of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power at work within us. We come before your word with trembling and with joy, fully expectant that the promises of Psalm 1 are available even here today. That blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Jesus, we delight in your word. And we ask, God, that you would make us, through the hearing of your word, like trees planted by streams of living water. We love you, God. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Yeah, we are like living our best life right now. My oldest son is like fully in kindergarten now, which is amazing uh, because it's like a lot easier to have two kids than three kids uh, at home. But along with that, he's not here today because uh, schools are a petri dish of disease and he woke up feeling a little bit under the weather today. So we are navigating all of that as well. Um, If you missed last week, uh, we began a new series that we uh, are going to be spending the fall kind of examining the the New Testament, the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, um, sort of learning from him how it is that Jesus demonstrated love for the neighbor. You see, uh, Jesus summarized all of what it means to be a Christian with these two commands. He said, here's all you need to do. Just love God with everything that you have, and then love your neighbor like you would love yourself. And we're like, easy, got that, nailed it. Uh, How do we do that? That's really hard. So we are spending our time looking at Jesus so that we can follow him and becoming people of love for others. Um, A few months ago... I was with my family, and we were taking a short vacation to Central Oregon. Now, if you know me very well at all, you know that my wife and I are notoriously terrible travelers. Um, Mostly circumstantially, every vacation seems like it has some major catastrophe. Um, There's an especially bad vacation we took to Kauai a couple of years ago, where basically the world ended while we were um, on the island. And then last year, our family vacation, after a very challenging year, um, we looked forward to going to Central Oregon. Um, But unfortunately, the week that we picked to go on vacation uh, had unbreathable toxic air. And so we spent all of our time uh, indoors. But a couple of months ago in the springtime, we took a short vacation to Central Oregon, which is our favorite place to vacation. My family has a house in Sun River. And this was following a pretty exhausting season for us. You see, in addition to all of the regular just pressures of life and the busyness of church world during the Easter season, there was also just other difficulties, some family stuff that had been happening. And, um, and then, of course, we lost a very dear member of our church to cancer during that time. And it was just sort of a, a long road of, of pain and prayer and tears. But, you know, what we tend to do when we hit those kind of exhausting seasons is we just power through them. And then it's only when we stop to take a breath that we sort of realize how much of a toll that it's taken on our bodies. And so during my vacation, I was planning on getting up early and spending lots of time with Jesus. I was going to read and relax and eat great food and go on bike rides. But instead, during our vacation, my beautiful, perfect, adorable, I'm in love with her baby daughter, decided that she didn't need to sleep for a week. Um, and then, uh, and I made the mistake of not throwing my phone in the ocean before uh, my vacation. So my phone was being blown up with text messages from work stuff back home. And in my exhaustion, I admit that I succumbed to anger texting and frustration with my children. Am I alone? Has anybody else had a vacation like that before? 
Aaron, my man. I called you out for the live stream. They can't see you. Um, See, what I needed was alone time, but what I got instead was the relentless demands of life. They followed me to Central Oregon. And so during that time, my wife graciously, graciously sent me out on a walk in the woods to get away from everybody and to process all of the stress and the grief and the anger that was in my body. And so I hiked way out into the middle of the woods, and it was there that I literally screamed for like a minute. That's, that's how I do it. You don't have to do it that way. It's just how I do it. Um, it works for me. And then after a moment of screaming and just kind of letting it all out, there was a sudden silence where I could hear the gentle whisper of God. And after a short time with him beside the river, just giving it all over to him and taking some deep breaths and looking at rocks and trees and clouds and a river and realizing that all of this stuff existed way before I ever came on the scene and will exist long after I am gone and that none of these things care about any of my problems. It put everything in perspective and I was able to hike back to my house with a renewed sense of who I am and uh, I was able to, to approach my family and all the same chaos that still existed but I could do it with a heart of compassion and attentiveness and love. And I turned off my phone. You see, all of my problems lingered, but my heart was turned to see a little bit more how God sees. So the, the thing that we're talking about today, the questions that we're asking is, how do we love others when life is relentless and need is everywhere? How do we respond to overwhelming problems that surround us all the time with our very meager resource? How do we become people of love who see others the way that God sees them? So as we examine the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we are consistently forced to reckon with a strange paradox of Jesus' humanity and his divinity. And we often fall into the trap of wanting to say, well, Jesus was able to do that because he's God, and Jesus was tired because he was human. And the truth is, he was both all at the same time, a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. And so we read of these extraordinary miracles and how he had authority over spiritual powers and demons. And at the same time, Jesus had these really human relationships with other people. And he dealt with his human limitations of fatigue and tiredness. And he felt all of the same weight of emotions that you and I feel. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 14, and Jesus is facing a deeply human and a deeply personal pain. Jesus' cousin and one of his closest friends had been imprisoned by Herod, who was the son of the man who was so enraged at the thought of another threatening kingdom that he committed a genocide in the region against an entire generation of young boys in an attempt to kill baby Jesus. So that's where this Herod, he's the son of that guy. And during a drunken party, uh, Herod's niece came and performed a sexual dance in front of the crowd for her uncle and in his arousal and drunkenness offered to give her anything that she wanted. And the depravity of this situation is just beyond what we can comprehend. What she requested from him was the head of God's prophet, Jesus' cousin and close friend, John brought in 
on a platter so that they could celebrate his death together. And we read that after this shameful, depraved party that John's disciples, his closest friends, came and they took the body and they buried it. And as soon as they finished burying him, they went and they found Jesus and they told him what had just happened. And that is the context for one of the stories that is found in all four Gospels. This is the only story of Jesus' miracles that we find in all four Gospels. It's one of the most commonly referred to miracles that Jesus performed. But we often miss the fact that Jesus fed a multitude of people. And what was his emotional state? He was grieving. He was in pain. And all he wanted was a little bit of time to himself. We read in, in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now the word that's used here in, in Matthew 14 for solitary place is the Greek word eremos. And it's used all throughout the Bible. It's almost always translated as wilderness or desert. But here, this is the only place in the Bible where it is translated as solitary or lonely. As if to emphasize that Jesus was going to, he, would, he really wanted to get a little bit of alone time. Um, and you see, throughout the Gospels, we see that, that Jesus had a high value for so, the practice of solitude and being alone. He would regularly get away early in the morning to be with God by himself. And you could easily make a case for the power of Jesus, that, the, that the power of Jesus' life and his ministry directly flowed from his alone time with God. And this is a consistent theme that goes way before Jesus. We see throughout the entire Old Testament that God's people would regularly be drawn out away from all of the noise into the wilderness. And that it's there that they would experience God. The Hebrew word uh, that's used in the Old Testament for wilderness or desert um, is the word midbar. And uh, uh, it can literally be translated as the place of hearing. You see, God would draw or sometimes force people out into the wilderness because it was the only space that they could really hear his voice. And so here's Jesus, and he knew that the place that he needed to go in this moment to hear from God, to process his grief and all of his pain, was to get away to the midbar, to go out into the aremos, to the solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus gets word of his cousin's death, and he gets into a boat, and he takes off, and, uh, and you know, he says, see you guys, I need to get away and be with God for a little bit. And as he is going, a crowd of people follow him. Jesus says, I need some alone time, and everyone's like, that's an awesome idea, Jesus will come too. And then they went and told all of their friends, guess what? Jesus is going out to have some alone time with God, and we're all going. You want to come? And so imagine Jesus landing his boat on the shore of the lake, pulling it up on the beach, maybe tying it off to a, to a tree or to a rock or something like that, and walking up the bank over a little hill with tears of grief in his eyes because he's already let the feelings come while he's in the boat, only to find a crowd of thousands of people 
up over the ridge. That his alone time became Coachella. And he's the headliner. How would you respond? Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, was, uh, I, I went out on a hike by myself. It was my birthday, and my wife very graciously let me have the whole morning to be alone with God up on the mountain. So I went to climb South Sister, uh, which is a really tough hike, but a really good one. And, um, and along the way, I was having this awesome conversation with Jesus, and I was just processing lots of things, and it, it was just that wonderful time of decompression. And so I finally reached the summit. And I'm exhausted by the challenge of this hike, but I'm also proud. And I want to take a picture of everything that I'm seeing. So I reach into my backpack. I grab my phone out of it. I unlock the screen. And there I see like a dozen work-related text messages that are just sitting on my phone. And it's nobody's fault but my own. And, and it, yes, it immediately took me out of the glory of the moment that I was having with Jesus on the mountain, and I wanted to throw my freaking phone over the edge of the mountain. I didn't. But think about, I mean, that's, that's my reaction to a couple of text messages. I have to imagine Jesus in this moment exhaling slowly, <sighs> looking up to heaven with the why me look on his face. And then he looks back down on the crowd, and we see that he saw these people with eyes of compassion. He saw their need, and he responded with healing. He knew that he would eventually get his alone time later, but right now there are sick people that need to be healed, and there are lost people that need to be loved. See, Jesus' compassion is honestly as mind-blowing as his miraculous multiplying of food in my mind. I've spent so much time this week, like just praying through this, this text and meditating on it. And I am hung up on that phrase that he looked on them with compassion. You see what Jesus is doing here? He translates his grief over his dead cousin into grief for these people who are in need. And before the outward work of miraculous power that we see in him healing sick people and casting out demons and multiplying food to feed the hunger of these people, first comes the inward miraculous work of power in Jesus transforming his own pain into love for those who are in need. And I think that the only way that Jesus was able to do this was because he was so clear about his mission. Jesus knew who he was and why he was there. He came to seek and save lost people. He came as a physician to mend the spiritually and physically and emotionally sick around him. He came to set free those who were in bondage to spiritual powers and their own sin. Jesus' mission was people. Jesus' mission was loving people. And therefore, he could serve them before serving himself. And by contrast, the way, the, the, the way of the world, the, the values of our world today and our culture would point us in a totally different direction. And here's the thing, if your mission is your own well-being or your own happiness, people will always be an inconvenience and barrier to your mission. But not so with Jesus. Jesus acted with compassion. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. Not remote enough, it seems. Um, and it's already getting late. 
Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So after a long day of ministering to the crowds, the disciples, they, they notice that it's starting to get late and they come to Jesus and they, they come with a real request. They say the people are hungry. It is time for us to dismiss the crowds, to end the ministry time so that everybody can get back to the villages and get something to eat. Now, scholars uh, have differing takes on sort of the tone of the disciples. It's kind of hard to read what, what, what they were sounding like as they were talking. You see, some rightly note that throughout the Gospels, whenever the disciples come and approach Jesus to ask him a question, they always start with a respectful title of Lord, and then they say what they need or what they think. But not so here. There's almost like an abruptness. They just say, look, it's late. <laughs> I think it's getting late, Jesus. I think people need to get home. But other scholars, you know, think that the disciples are actually following Jesus' compassion. And they're noticing a need for dinner in the crowd and that they want to meet that need because their hearts also carry that compassion. And so it is compassionate to finish the ministry time and let the people head home. Personally, my personality prefers to read this as annoyed, sarcastic disciples trying to close down the meeting. Because I'm a church kid, and I know what it's like to be at a late-night revival meeting, and all you want to do is get home. But either way that you read it, it's very relatable for us. Jesus, it's late. We're hungry. Kids are crying, and we all just need to get home for dinner. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So instead of taking their cue and dismissing the crowd and letting them all go out for dinner, he instead draws his disciples into his compassion and invites them to join him in what he's about to do. They don't need to go away. I have a better idea. How about you guys feed them? And without missing a beat, they show him what they've got. Again, we don't know the tone of the disciples' response, but it reads to me with some sarcasm. All right, Jesus, sure, we'll feed them. Uh, You have a knife to cut up these five loaves, two fish. This is what we got. And (laughs) uh, we'll just start divvying it up. You see, the compassion of Jesus was running up against one of the hardest barriers that he had yet faced in his ministry. Not unbelief, practicality, realism. The work of Jesus was about to be cut short by the pragmatism of his apprentices. But notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them or call them out for their lack of faith. He simply says, bring what you've got here. Bring them here to me, he said. You see, he doesn't require their faith. He doesn't need what they don't have. He simply asks for what they do have. And, throughout, and, and, and through the little that the disciples hand over to Jesus, thousands of people end up being fed. You see, what what the disciples were lacking in that moment was the compassion of Jesus. They needed Jesus' compassion. But Jesus needed something, too, from them. He needed their sacrifice. He needed their willingness. Unless we read this story as a parable or a fable that's meant to teach us the value of compassion and generosity, we'll get there, don't worry, we first have to grapple with the actual face value claims that Matthew makes in the telling of this encounter and what happens next. Because what we see that happens in the following verses is that he looks up to heaven, he blesses God, he breaks the bread, and all of a sudden, 
5,000 men plus women and children are fed. You see, there are certain symbolic elements in how Matthew tells this story. Numbers of people and the leftover baskets full, they all are calling us back to the imagery of the Old Testament scripture that any first century Jew would have immediately picked up on. In feeding this multitude, Jesus is pointing back to the story of Israel coming out of bondage and enslavement in the land of Egypt and, that, and how, how uh, Moses led them out into the wilderness, into the Eremos, into the Midbar. And that while they were there, they were miraculously fed by Yahweh. And that Jesus is now the new Moses who is himself feeding God's people and leading them out of their bondage and their captivity to sin and Satan and death. And then, of course, discerning readers of the New Testament, good Christians, we all know our Bibles, right? Um, That we will see Jesus giving thanks and breaking the bread um, and distributing it to the people as actually a foreshadowing of what he will later do the night before he goes to the cross when he's eating a meal with his disciples and he breaks bread and he says, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And he's showing that what he's about to do is actually for their salvation That the way that Jesus would ultimately provide for those lost and hungry souls is by going to the cross and overcoming sin and death and hell. And there is profound imagery in this story that we could piece out and it would just be this beautiful, you know, literature. But we also have to grapple with the claim that this story is making. That somehow, by Jesus blessing it, five loaves... And two fish are miraculously multiplied to feed the crowd. That a foot-long tuna sub satisfied thousands of people. That's crazy. It really is. And centrally to what it means to follow Jesus is faith in the supernatural. You can't follow Jesus without a belief in the supernatural. To be a Christian requires belief that a crucified man got up out of a tomb in three days. We believe some crazy stuff. And we believe that Jesus still does supernatural stuff through his followers today. Jesus still responds to people's needs with compassion. He still heals the sick today. Amen? He still drives out the demonic. He still feeds hungry people and cares for the poor and multiplies resources because he cares for people. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. And God is immutable. The God who, the God of, of Moses and Abraham and David and Jesus is the same God that we serve today. And if he was compassionate then, he will be compassionate now. Genero- or the disciples, they bring what they have to Jesus. And their sacrifice and their generosity is multiplied to care for those who are in need. The generosity from lack in the face of overwhelming need, makes for the perfect conditions for a miracle. Amen? And so as we read this, we're invited to find ourselves in this story. 
as we are daily confronted in our world with unfathomable need, how will we join Jesus in his compassion for a hurting and broken world? Faced with the impossible, crowd, uh, impossible job of feeding this crowd of people, the disciples flippantly point to their lack, their meager resources that feel insignificant and even laughable in the face of a hungry multitude. But upon hearing Jesus' invitation to bring them what they have, they surrender their own provisions in trust that their provisions are better in the hands of Jesus than they are in their own hands. And as Jesus' disciples, you and me, he calls us to do the same thing. Bring what you have. Entrust it to me. And wait and see what I will do with it. And yet, if we are honest, as just regular American Christian people, we are usually way more in touch with our lack than we are with God's invitation. You see, the most common reason that Christians say they don't give faithfully to a church or even to uh, nonprofits and charity, for that matter, is, is a very simple reason. It's that I can't afford it. And the assumption, or maybe a better word is the aspiration, is that one day, I, I want to give. And so one day, when I finally have more, that's when I will follow Jesus with generosity. But right now, it's just too tight. And listen, I get it. Living in the Pacific Northwest is super expensive. And there are these things that drain your budget called children. They are so expensive. And it's hard to give away money, as one example. But if I had just a little bit more, then I could totally do this generosity thing. And the problem is that humans don't work like that. It's a near universal truth that if you are not generous with the little that you have today, you will not be generous with the increase that you have later in the future. But on the other hand, there is a biblical principle that is also universally true. That Jesus says that the one who is faithful with a little bit will be given charge over more and will be faithful with more. Jesus delights and celebrates when we offer him the very little that we have today. This is true for our money, but it doesn't stop there. Because he invites us to give him all of ourselves. Our time, our work, our relationships, our effort, the things that occupy our mental space. He says, give it, bring it to me. And see how I will multiply and, be, and, and make you fruitful in every area of your life. See how you will become a, like a fruitful tree that provides for others. And as we bring him what we have, even when it's lacking, he transforms us more and more into the people of love. And he uses what we bring to bless others. Amen? Right, Steve? You've seen it a hundred times. You guys want a long quote? Good, because you don't have a choice. <laughs> um, here's a long quote from N.T. Wright's commentary in Matthew. By hanging around Jesus, you've had an idea. It wasn't quite in focus, but your main intention, in this case that the people should be fed, is on target. Jesus proposes achieving that aim by different means. You say it's impossible, but you're prepared to give him the little you've got, if it'll be any good. 
Of course, it means you'll go hungry yourself, but by now, you're in too deep to stop. Once the power of Jesus' compassion has begun to catch you up in its flow, you can't stop. What precisely Jesus does with what we give him is so mysterious and powerful that it's hard to describe in words. Imagine yourself standing there while Jesus, surrounded by thousands of people, takes this pitifully small amount of food, hardly enough for two people, let alone a crowd, and he prays over it. And he thanks God for it. He breaks it, and he gives it to you and the others, and you give it to one person after another after another without knowing what's happening or how. Think through how it's happened. Being close to Jesus has turned into the thought of service. Jesus takes that thought, turns it inside out, making it more costly, of course, and gives it back to you as a challenge. In puzzled response to the challenge, you offer what you've got, knowing it's quite inadequate, but again costly, and the same thing happens. He takes it, blesses it, breaks it. There's the cost yet again and gives it to you. And your job now is to give it to everybody else. There's a mysterious and powerful thing that happens as we catch Jesus' compassion and we take the risk to surrender what we have over to him. And it's in these moments that we experience the exhilaration of God's miraculous power. Whether it's in large, visible fruitfulness or in small, invisible heart transformation. Either way, it's a miracle and it's a joy. And so how do we love others when life is relentless and need is everywhere? Bring what you have to Jesus. One of the, the early like, founders, uh, leaders of the Vineyard Movement, a man named John Wimber, he had these amazing pithy little sayings. And one of my favorites is this. He used to say, I'm just loose change in God's pocket. He can spend me as he pleases. I love that. A life surrender, that we bring all of ourselves to God as an offering, being very realistic about the fact that he's not getting the best deal <laughs> so that he can pour us out for the sake of other people. You see, we are confronted with great need every day. Driving here this morning, Maybe you saw, as I did, uh, individuals standing on street corners right next to stoplights with cardboard signs asking for help. We're confronted with the need every day. It's hard to ignore um, all of the, the houselessness that is happening in our city, in our region right now, in Portland and Vancouver. It's just exploding. We're confronted with statistics all the time, hearing about uh, the needs for families to open their home to foster care children. We've been confronted in recent weeks with Afghan refugees who are being settled right here in Portland and need help starting over. That we see in our community an epidemic of mental health concerns and emotional health concerns. We see it everywhere. We see need all around us all the time. And when we look out over this ocean of need, it is so easy to feel immediately overwhelmed and paralyzed. What good could I possibly do? Where would I even start? How could I possibly contribute to this? How can I do anything meaningful that will help anybody? Bring what you have. In time, in money, in effort, in influence, and in prayer. Bring what you have. 
This is an invitation from Jesus to enter into the compassion of Jesus. And do you know what precluded Jesus' compassion in the story? Very simple. He saw them. The first step in growing into a person who loves his or her neighbor is learning how to pay attention to our neighbor, to see others around you. And so I don't know if you can relate to this, but I, I find myself in seasons realizing that I've actually grown accustomed to tuning out the people who are outside my window, standing on the street corners. I've become very good at just ignoring it because we live in a cashless society. Who has cash anymore? I'm waiting for them to have square, and then I can, then I can give. Um, maybe we, we look out and we see that the foster care system, the need there is so great, and you feel powerless to do anything. And maybe you're not in a stage of life where you're able to open your home up to bring these kiddos in who need a, a warm home and a safe home to stay in. Jesus would say to you, bring what you do have. How can you identify parents, uh, foster parents in our congregation and in our community, and how can you support them, pray for them, love them, uh, offer to, to, to just give them a date night or something like that? But what can you bring to them? Maybe the crisis of homelessness is like it's in front of your face and it's on your heart and you feel overwhelmed or even frightened at the idea of, of trying to do something. Bring what you have. How can you always be prepared to author, offer something of help to a person in need? Maybe, maybe after watching the situation that's unfolded in Afghanistan, your heart is broken over these images of men and mostly men, uh, trying to flee the country and clinging to airplanes in desperation to escape from Taliban rule. How in the world can I do anything in the face of this like massive geopolitical crisis? Jesus would say, bring what you have. Pray, 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 pray. Put together a restarting kit with Refugee Care Collective right here in Portland. Very easy. Maybe giving 10% of your income back to Jesus in the form of a tithe feels so beyond reach. Who has an extra 10% in their budget? Bring what you have. And if I can be just honest about where we are right now as a church, as a church family, God is doing really, really cool stuff. But it is stretching all of our resources all of our teams, from greeting to hospitality to kids' ministry to youth ministry, are in desperate need of more help. God is opening up more and more doors for us to be able to reach and serve families uh, of students of Hudson, at Hudson's Bay High School and at Harney Elementary. Um, and, and we need people and resources and time. We're in the early stages of renovating our kitchen, a kitchen space in the portal so that we can better feed the hundreds of students that come through our building each week. There is so much opportunity and there is so much need right now. And here's the thing, that to me is exciting because that's where miracles happen. There is a danger to our souls if we ever find ourselves in a place where our resources exceed our vision. Amen? I pray to God that he would always give us more opportunity and more vision than he gives us resources. I never want to be in that comfortable place. I want Jesus to keep showing up and multiplying and making amazing kingdom stuff 
happens. And I want to invite us as a church to come together with this shared vision, this shared desire to see the multitudes reached with the love of Jesus and fed and cared for right here in our community. But it takes all of us bringing what we have. How can each of us contribute the modest resources that we have in our money, our time, our effort, our prayer? What can you offer to Jesus to see him multiply his kingdom purposes? This, my friends, this is how we grow into people of love. This is how we learn how to love our neighbors. When life is, restless, when life is relentless and need is everywhere to become like Jesus, those who see with eyes of compassion, and to be like the disciples who say, this is all I've got. 